Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to an extra special episode of the delicious podcast, Extra Portion, with me, Julie Smith, and food writer, Diana Henry, in her very first interview about her brand new book, How to Eat a Peach. Here she tells me how the menu she collected as a child became the inspiration for the most personal of her books to date. I asked her how it feels as she releases the book to the world. It's scary. Um, and that seems like an odd word. I mean, nothing awful is going to happen. But this is the most personal book I've done by a long way. And it's my favourite book that I've written since Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, which was my first one. Well, quite a lot of the long essays in the book were written at an intense kind of time when my father was ill and one of my sons was ill. And I just came back from visiting hospitals at the end of the day and it was a very hot summer. So I was kind of like, you know, drenched in sweat. We're getting here. could hardly open the bottle of wine quickly enough. And then I would write and I'd write till about three in the morning. And I think Part of the writing was to escape what was going on at the time. So I went into, I've talked before about going kind of underwater when you write to this other place. And I was very deep down under the water for the writing of most of this book. I mean, not not all the essays in it are very intense. Some of them are very practical, but a lot of them are about memory and place places yeah. and that kind of thing I mean you um, do talk about your childhood there's a wonderful piece when you're sitting on a rug with your mother reading tell us about that book oh Rosa Too Little that was my favorite story that she used to read me it, it's funny if you come from Northern Ireland it makes me sound really ancient when I talk about traveling and the fact that we never went anywhere but everything in Northern Ireland is about 50 years behind um so it was the late 60s and um, my mum used to read me this story of Rosa Toodle sitting on the rug in the garden. And she, Rosa lived in a brownstone in New York. And we lived at a time when, honestly, if an aeroplane went over our house, it was a big deal. My mum would say, there's an aeroplane, there's an aeroplane. And she went inside and she'd pick up a couple of tea towels and we'd have to wave them. <laughs> and I'd say, do you think they can really see us? Say, oh, the captain, definitely the captain will see us. Everything seemed very far away. Mm-hmm. Um... We lived just at the edge of a, a small seaside town, but right at the edge of it, so it was basically in the countryside. And at the end of our garden, there was a pebble dash wall. And beyond it, there were fields of wheat that just seemed to go on. To me, they could have gone on for thousands of miles. And I used to kind of look over that wall and look at the horizon. And I was always fixed on that. Mm. What was beyond that? Because Northern Ireland seemed so tiny and seemed so far away from mm. everywhere else. Mm. And... Irish people 
do and we always have done think about leaving and mm. dream mm. about leaving for for different reasons in history but my sense very early on because the, the trouble started in 1968 was that we had the troubles so you didn't stay and I'm not sure where I got that from I don't know whether it's from my parents or just a general kind of feeling that I was picking up from around the place because not all my contemporaries left Northern Ireland but I wanted to get away and the first place I wanted to get to was America. Mm. I mean, it's really funny when I now hear many years later, I never listened to um, any music of Copeland till about sort of a decade ago. But when when I hear um, Appalachian Spring, I think of those wheat fields and that sense of going places and going over the edge of the horizon and going far. That that was very much around when I was growing up, even though we didn't go anywhere. Mm. So I'm just wondering whether you know the the idea of of your father being ill was bringing back all these memories because it wasn't just you you sitting on the rug with your mother. It was leaving home at fifteen and going off to to France for the first time, and then travelling and all through through your twenties. I'm wondering how how hinged it was to the sense of family and home. I, I don't know how, you know, all books kind of have their trajectory and they're quite organic. So basically, I started to write a book about menus um, because that's very important to me. It's my favourite bit of cooking, really, is to kind of think about what goes together. And I've always loved them and loved planning them. Um, but as soon as I started to actually put the menus together, they nearly always brought up a place and some of them a time as well, but always kind of recollections of a place. And so it just happened that the book then started to be about places as much as it was about food or meals or menus or anything. Mm. But, the, but the menus, and, and you, you write this right at the beginning of the introduction, you used to gather menus in an exercise book as a child. You were fascinated. And I'm just wondering whether those menus were sort of like little postcards of, of a future life, a future place. Well, they, yeah, because they were about... The way I travelled was either through reading, and I was a really avid reader, or through cooking. And as soon as I discovered cookbooks, then I'd kind of, you know, look, oh, look at this, Mum, and we want... Because, you know, maybe it was a French recipe or something like that. So that was another way to travel. So reading and cooking have been my... They'd be my way to get places yeah. when I couldn't get places because I didn't I didn't leave Northern Ireland until I was 15. And yeah. then I was by myself when I went. But when you went, you really became a very immersive traveller. And I found this this theme was also really interesting. Food as language. Food to give you access to the places that oh, you yes, went to. Did. So you, at 15, you went to France to... Yeah, and I, was, and I was really homesick. And I kind of like, I absolutely insisted I had to do this. You know, nobody, nobody in my class was doing this, but I was determined. So I managed to sort it out. And I left, you know, I got on a plane from Dublin to go to Paris, never having been in a plane, only having ever looked at them. And I know, I mean, I was going to Paris, but my first kind of thing that really, that really surprised me was when I was in there, I said, nobody told me what the clouds would be like. Nobody told me what this would be like. And it does sound very, I mean, my children were travelling by the time they were one. Yeah. Um, but I've kept that sense of, um, first, well, definitely sense of wonder. But also, I'm not a very brave traveller. I'm quite timid. I mean, I went to the um, Norwegian Arctic in the summer and it was like, why am I doing this? And, and I went, in fact, I went to the Arctic last February when it was absolutely freezing and thought to myself, yeah, with, with fishermen and thought, why am I doing this? But I kind of make myself do it and then it's amazing. Yeah. Very rarely, very rarely is it awful. 
Um, but I don't find it easy. I'm not one of those people. I mean, when everyone else was going off, you know, round Asia with backpacks, I was kind of like, I wasn't doing that. In my 20s, I was going to every region of France. You were. Like some kind of 45-year-old. <laughs> um, so it's not that And I'm immediately cooking intrepid. with people. That's what's so interesting about oh, yeah. it. So Clotilde, your... your uh... Oh, no. When I went, when my exchange partner, Clotilde, she was the same age as me. And she was a cook. She was fantastic. And I was, I was also a very good cook. Yeah. But she was just amazing. And, and she taught me that we spent our days yeah. basically cooking or collecting mushrooms or going to the farm to get rabbit that then we'd kind of pot. I mean, this was, my mum was a very good cook. I had very good food at home. But France just did my head in, yeah. really. And, and this is the point. And, and so I think that the, the main, one of the main themes in the book is food as access to these extraordinary places. It is. Because, I mean, I read it as a beautiful travelogue. I don't know if that's what you meant it as. I and don't I know th- what I meant it as. Well, exactly. And, and, and a reader <laughs> it takes... came out. Well, you say it's a very organic process to write a book. And it's actually up to the reader to decide what that book is in, in many Absolutely, ways, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I love the travelogue element of it. But it felt that you through your love of food and your ability to find the food, you were able to penetrate those places. It, yeah. You weren't a tourist. You weren't... No, and that and that still happens. I don't... I, we went to... I went to Moscow before Christmas because I'm doing research into northern countries and Russia's one of the places I'm looking at. And if you travel because you want to look at that, well, for a start, you, you don't go on a trip, you know, you, you research it before you go, but you meet home cooks and you meet bakers. I met the best baker in Moscow and you talk to chefs as well. What I try to do is to get into home kitchens, but it shows you, I could never do that on a normal trip. So you do get right, right underneath the skin of a place because you know what they eat. And then you, because of that, you look at the history and the geography and everything. But also, you make, as soon as you talk to people about food, they completely open up. Mm. And they'll tell you about what their mum made, or they'll ask you to tea, or they'll ask you to come for, or they'll say, you have to come again, and this, the next time you have to come and stay with me. Mm. Um, and I get very excited, and they get very excited, because people who love food are, are like that. And so you have, you make these very quick connections mm. with people. Yeah, and I think as a tourist, I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that increasingly, I think, places like Italy, Spain and France, they close you out as a tourist. They won't let you in. But with a little bit of language, with a, certainly a lot of food, you can prise open that door and make friends. And then you're allowed in. And then you're allowed the whole f- the experience. And I wonder if it's because, you know, of globalisation. I think it's because, particularly those countries which are very proud of their food identity, they're keeping it to themselves. They yeah. won't let the tourists have it. I've just been to Rome, for example, done a, an interesting piece about how how to eat like the locals. Okay. And the locals say, we keep those secrets to ourselves. If we really like you, if you make enough of an effort, we'll let you in. Yes. And here's how. Yeah. Um, but I I want... You, you don't seem to have that attitude. You And maybe it was the time you were travelling, but you... You know, in the book, we go to Istanbul, we go to Provence, we go to Spain, we go to... So all over the world, New York, and each one of those places you seem to have penetrated. What's what's the key? I do lots of reading. Before, I do loads of research. I mean, before there was the internet, I used to spend... I would... I mean, you should. I've still got ancient cuttings in my filing cabinet upstairs, so I would look at, you know places places where there were markets then I look at restaurants I would pull pieces out I would refer and cross refer and collate everything so it's always been 
um, lots of research. And then you also have to have an open mind because that snowballs a bit because you'll go to some place and they'll say, um, oh, yeah, but have you tried such and such or have you gone such and such a place? So I think it's reading around it. Mm. And it's never just reading about the food either. It's mm. reading as much as possible. I mean, you should see that I've got two towers of books just about Russia and that there's novels and there's poetry and there's everything. So I think to get into the... It's funny, to get into the food, you need to do a lot of that other stuff, but also um, the food takes you to that mm. other stuff as well. Mm. So all, I, I see it all as a whole, really, <clears throat> but but I do lots of reading. So quite a lot of work in order to, to get that. Yeah, but I like it. Lovely. I'm just thinking about other people, you know. You, you no, I know my ex-husband used to say, have we got a schedule for this trip? And I, I mean, I, 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 I am, I mean, even when we went on holidays, I was like that. I want, because I don't want to miss anything, so we'll go here and we'll go there. I mean, we had a we had a terrible ride one night in Tuscany because I was kind of suggesting we would drive seventy. Well, he would basically drive seventy five miles so we could eat in this place that cured their own particular kind of ham. And I'm like, well, but of but of course we would do that. Um, not everybody gets it. <laughs> it has to be said. <laughs> Tell me about writing yourself into place you're very interested in place and you say yeah. so and you know you take us to lots of different places you use beautiful language to get us there and you know the way you're telling us it sounds a little bit more that in reality it's it's more difficult but you you love literature don't you what's what's for you the 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 use of literature to to get us to place i think it i think it gets you to be alert i think that's one of the things literature does i mean especially poetry I think it gets you to notice. And I think from very early on in life, I felt that pleasure of noticing things. And I think you need that as a writer, but that's not why I did it. When you're small, you just kind of, you realise that you get more pleasure out of life if you pay attention to small details, like, you know, the rain on the, you know, the the milk bottles at the front door, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I think I'm just lucky in that when I do go places, I really notice things. Mm. And you take notes? Uh, yes, I do. T- I've got loads of notebooks and I take notes. I found some stuff the other day that I didn't know I'd had about this hike I was on in Nova Scotia with this woman. We were mostly scared of bears the whole time over there because she said there could be baby bears, so we've got to be careful. <laughs> but I'd made notes about the smell of the blueberries on the ground as they were warming up. But um, I'm able really to remember detail yeah. very well. And I think it's I think it's partly because I'm quite a nervous traveller. So I go places and other people just get places and I'm like, really relax, it's fine, have a drink. Blah, blah. And I'm like this little creature with antenna out. And it, it also means that if I go places that are miserable, I mean, I've never been to India because I worry about being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So I've never been. You would be. Yeah, and that's scary. And I, do, I don't know how I'd manage that. But I think it is, I mean, I do get kind of like sensory over, overload. Mm. So that has its good side and its bad side. I'm just wondering if you use um, your imagination and, and those lovely use of words to tell the stories in to yourself of those places to make them more, uh, well, less worrying. Um, I think getting in through the food means you are immediately connected to a place so you don't feel homesick and sometimes I wonder if the the whole thing was set on that first trip to France which I loved but it also I mean I went I went for two months having never left home before um so it was really scary at the beginning and I know that one of the ways I settled down was was via cooking there because everybody did it Mm. um 
and I wonder if I've used it ever since. Mm. I'm wondering. Maybe. I, there's something about that. There's some some kind of because the it's a very visceral experience. Reading your book is a very visceral experience. You can tell, and even the title, "How to Eat a Peach." You know, very early on, you talk about the peaches in the mus- was it was it what Moscato. was it Moscato. Mm. Um, as something you noticed on a, a big table in Italy yeah. of, of how people actually... T- tell that story about the, the first seeing those peaches in the Moscato. Oh, it was the, my first trip to Italy and I was, I think I was about 21. And I, I felt, I have felt this about everywhere I've gone. You know, I went to France, it was like, oh my God, it's so French. When I went to Italy, I can remember sort of crossing the border and seeing the first kind of like terracotta villa and um, cypress trees. It was like, Oh my god it's so italian yeah. um but on the last night of that trip we just had a little apartment um near florence a holiday let on the last night we went out to this it wasn't swanky it was simple but it was lovely outside restaurant and the people at the next table they didn't they didn't have dessert they just had this bowl of peaches came to the table ice cold moscato they poured the moscato into their wine glasses they sliced peach they dropped it in they left it to macerate a while and then they drank the wine and they ate the peach. Yeah. So and the flavour of each had fused the other or infused the other. And I thought, my God. Um, well, not just that's a lovely way to end a meal, because it is. But there was something about the simplicity mm. of that approach, which I'd also kind of like taken. I hadn't eaten that yet, but I'd loved the work of Alice Water since I read about mm. her in my late teens. And it was that kind of approach that... It's simple, but it's so sort of magical. You can kind of like get a shiver from it yeah. because it's, it's, again, it's about noticing small things, noticing details, stuff that's not complicated, that's very, very simple, yeah. but makes an impact on you. because And because it's simple, you're paying attention to the both elements in that, the perfect peach and the glass of wine. Yes. And, and going back to the, the fear and the tension that you are feeling, it's very grounding, isn't it? And I'm just wondering if there's a connection between those, those antennae that you're, you're, you're talking about, the fear, the, the timid traveller who goes around the world and grounds yourself with this very comforting simplicity of food. Oh, I think you sort of do that a little bit initially and, and then you're in the swim. And then, honestly, it's... it's pure pleasure after that most of the time unless it's somewhere as I say like if I was in India I'm sure I would continue to be upset by certain things but no it, it's you're, you're, the antenna's out and then you sort of like you settle down into the place and then it's I just notice everything yeah yeah we've talked a little bit about it let's talk some more about otherness the small town girl looking out onto the world mm. looking at these menus like poems as a small child dreaming mm. of another world do you still see the world as other you use the word otherness um but you seem to have tamed it you seem to have made it your own you write about it as if you own it well yes and no i'd hate not to see places as foreign and um very different but i'd go anywhere really you say whenever you leave a place you say well could i live here and that's an interesting question that was what i used to do when i was in my late teens, early 20s, I always used to think. And it was a kind of testing. I mean, I wasn't terribly independent. I went off to university and was very, very homesick there. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was kind of that, it's that whole thing of leaving Ireland and knowing that you're always going, it's quite a big thing. Mm. And then when you come to England, you think you're never going back because most people, that's what they do think. That's a sort of strange way to grow up, actually. Um, to feel displaced before you even displace yourself. Exactly. I and it's not it's not completely unusual. I mean, some people that's the way they do grow up, 
but I don't I don't have a country um and I used to think that was not good and now I don't mind because I'm I mean I'm Irish and I feel very Irish but I wouldn't go back and live there again um I've always felt a bit like an outsider in England but that's fine and I live in London and there are loads of outsiders and I I I like I like it because I think I observe more Mm -hmm. I mean the only I would like to live more places that's kind of quite frustrating because once you have children you can't just take off for a year I mean I I spent a year in France before I went to university and I'm longing to do that again because that thing of living somewhere different it's it's Mm. fantastic Mm. Um, I'd like, I would like to live in New York for a year. Mm. I notice, I talk to a lot of people who, a lot of food writers who are displaced. Olia Hercules, Valentina Harris talked yeah. about it. Um, a lot of people. And they find them, their home through cooking. Mm-hmm. They talk about when they leave home, they get that homesickness that you're talking about. For them, they cook the food from home that helps them get back there you're cooking the world's food yeah that's really weird because I mean I do cook Irish stuff that I grew up with but I think this was I'm kind of like very weird it's not that I find home I think that in cooking I find it myself I mean it's it's like there is a kind of um I don't know an internal rhythm or something like I've been sick now for nearly two weeks and it's horrible because I wasn't able to cook so on Sunday I was in the kitchen again and it's like coming back to yourself. It's as if you, it's your body knows what to do. It's almost like exercise or something. It's the weirdest thing. And as soon as you start to cook, it's like, oh, this is really nice. Um, I don't know what it is. It's just my place where you're smelling, you're noticing what you're doing. I've done it for such a long time. Well, you've done it literally all your life. You started as yeah, a very, very young very, child, very young. You? So that just kind of thing of like chopping an onion and then soaking it. And it's the same thing you've done, yeah, for decades. Mm. But I find an incredible kind of like, um, if you think about it, it's the only thing that you, you sort of like keep doing, apart from kind of like sleeping, you know, that, that it's as if there's something very central in me which is at the cooker. Yeah, and a lot of people would say, you know, runners would say it's getting into the zone or something like that. It's when you feel that yes. sense of self. Interestingly, you make a point about when you were at university, mm. um, the the response from your dinner party guests, your female dinner party guests, was of horror when you oh, produced yeah, when something I, fabulous because was it wasn't seen as feminist. It, it just when I was, I mean, it was very very different. The whole food world just kind of didn't exist. I mean, Nouvelle Cuisine was about to happen and all the rest of it, but when I was at Oxford, um, it was not feminist, and it just wasn't cool and it wasn't important. I mean, everybody was very into politics, and I was as well. And I kind of knew that. I knew there was this kind of like difficult tug between doing something about to change the world and cooking, which was about pleasure, really. Um, and at that time, I think people saw them in a very opposing kind of way. I, I'm not altogether thrilled with what's happened since. I mean, now it's about fashionability and stuff like that that I'm just really not interested in. But it's also in. about producers. It's all about you no, know, that's good. No, that's sustainability. Great. No, no, local. That's seasonal. all fantastic. Alice Waters' mission has actually reached these shores. But I don't want it to be a you know treat it like a Prada handbag. I couldn't care less no, what's but, new and hip. But, but just no, absolutely. But Alice Waters was very important to you as a as a as a teenager. Yeah. Her, her attitude has really penetrated food culture all over the world now, hasn't she? The funny thing is, though, I mean, I really loved her food, but I didn't really pay massive attention to the 
the local thing because that's what I'd grown up with anyway. Mm. It was kind of odd when people started to talk about that to me about local and well, you seasonal. You must have noticed it in, in London. I mean, because it really wasn't until sort of 88. No, then they did. But it's when I came here, I didn't change my way of cooking. I, I cooked with more exotic ingredients. But, you know, I've never cooked any other way than what was in season because mm. that's just completely what mm. I knew. Mm. But you you were touched enormously by Chez Panisse and, and Alice Waters. What was I think it by, I think um, it was a simplicity. I think, I mean, I can remember standing in the bookshop when I found the Chez Panisse menu cookbook and we were in the middle of Nouvelle Cuisine, so hexagonal plates, reduced fill stock. And and I did an awful lot of that cooking because because it was a challenge because I liked the difficultness of it. Um, and one of the menus was... Um, baked garlic and goat's cheese and then I think there was um there was roast pork with uh roasted peppers and then a plum sherbet or something like that for for dessert and I mean listen listen to that I mean I a shiver went down my spine as I read that because it was focused it was incredible in its simplicity because it was kind of like there was was so little to it anyway but it was all about intense flavors not very many ingredients and colour, I mean, I could immediately kind of see a lot of it in my yeah. and it, mind. And it came from, when she was in Paris, actually, when Alice Waters yes. was in Paris, having the same experience you probably had when you were in Paris, where you go to the markets and you pick up a, whatever is there yeah. and you look at it and you smell it and you feel it and then you start to think about what you're going to no, do No, I interviewed it. her last year and it was kind of, it was, you know, she's a massive hero, so it was... I, it was, I was so nervous about talking to her. But then I found I had gone through a lot of this very similar yeah, things. Yeah. It was that going to France and just being... Well, you know, I had very good ingredients in Northern Ireland. It was also the attitude to them. It was the fact that people thought it was okay to talk about that every day. And at the, I mean, not only food, obviously, but to talk about one meal at what you might eat at the next one. To honour every meal every day... And to think that it was an important part of your day because you're going to do it three times. Mm. I mean, if you're going to do that every day, it might as well be pleasurable to eat and pleasurable to make. Mm. And I think that's where, in Britain, we kind of like missed out on that sort of attitude. Mm. You went into television um, to to save the world, to to do important things, to make important messages. You left it because you realised that wasn't going to happen. You went into food. Because you love it, and it because it was very central to who you are, yeah. and it's turned into fetishized, you know, the equivalent of Prada, as you as you say. Yeah. How do you see? How do you mar- marry that need to do something important, leave an important legacy with what you're doing now? I think that's really difficult because I don't, I don't think I do do anything very important. I've got to say, um, my my son is is um trying to be a doctor at the minute. And I can I envy him because it's I think what he's doing is very important. I preach to the converted most of the time. Um, I'm about to get involved in a charity, which when I was thinking along these lines, someone just happened to call me about, and I thought, oh my god, this is obviously you know meant to be. Um, it's to go into schools and start teaching children how to cook, and then hopefully to get to their parents via that. Um, Again, an Alice Waters um, mission. The... She has her edible schoolyard project. Um, so it isn't about growing things, or at least not as far as I know. But basically, if if I have a kind of 
mission and, and I think you know this the book I've written is lovely but every week and with everything I kind of write my stock and trade is recipes and I want to give people ideas of how to cook and how they can cook things quite simply all the traveling of the world and all the rest of it is wonderful it makes it all better but I would just like every parent to be able to think they could cook fresh food every day not to feel guilty if they can't but I think my job is to give people the facility to be able to cook and the ideas for what to do. Mm. I think that actually your your role, if I may say, is to put ideas into people's heads. I think that those dreams that you had as a as a small child, uh, your ability to look out, you know, you were in a place that seemed like you couldn't get mm. to the places that you eventually got to, but because you dreamt mm. and because you made those dreams a reality, you felt frightened, but you still went on and did it. You felt the fear and you did it anyway. Um, and then you ate very simple food. So it's not expensive food. No. So I think what you do is you give people the opportunity to dream. It's funny, I interviewed Ruby Tando recently. And when I was reading her book, Eat Up, um, and preparing to interview her, she, I don't know crosses the word, but quite critical. She thinks a lot of food writing is about fantasy. And I'm very aware of that. I mean, it is, and there's lots of us doing it. And it's about escape. But I also thought, and I talked to Ruby about this, um, what's wrong with that? I mean, I think there should be more voices. I think there needs to be more diversity in food writing, definitely. But I said to her, you know, fantasy, I wasn't sitting and kind of thinking, oh, I'll go to Tuscany next week and I'll go, you know, to New York the week after that. Basically, dreaming through food was my way of not it was as good as novels it was a it was a way of not just being in my country but being in other places too and if that's a fantasy i think that's a good fantasy i have to say thanks for listening to the delicious podcast extra portion and watch out for diana's instagram takeover coming soon to delicious you can check on the twitter and facebook pages for more information and i'll be back next week with another extra portion don't forget to subscribe via your podcast app so you never miss a bit Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.